Aubrey, otherwise known as The Bull, has founded many disruptive companies and is the pioneer of pop-up retailing in Australia and New Zealand. He's a well-known public speaker, board director, has been CEO of the arm of a massive listed New Zealand company for the Australian side and fixes distressed businesses. Paul, welcome to Discipline. Thank you. Um, it's quite a CV and it's not even half of it. When did you know you had a knack for creating value? Ah, okay. So, um, I think probably go back to where I, where I was first driven to kind of um, figure out what I, what I, how good I was or what I could do was when I was working in corporate back in the, in the mid, early mid-90s. And uh, I was working in the oil industry and the oil industry was going through a state of flux. Um, Liberty Oil had come in and it basically smashed all the oil in, all the oil, in, oil industry um, leading to kind of large-scale redundancies and restructures. And you were at Mobile? I was at Mobile. Yep. Um, and and it was basically, I was a guy there who was kind of half committed, um, cruising along pretty well, late 20s. And I remember my boss came to me one time and he said, you know, you got a lot of talent, but, you know, you're at work, your work rate's too low and, you know, you don't push yourself out enough there. So, but... Talent-wise, um, and then he said, "That's why other guys are getting the better jobs than you." So I remember thinking about that one point. And I thought, "Well, um, I actually need to get on with something here. I need to, I need to make a change mentally and and switch into higher gear." And that sort of led to the idea that, hey, I wasn't actually that suited to corporate after all. Um, I didn't want to play someone else's game, and uh, which le- which led me to have a look around for either, you know getting involved in a smaller business or starting something on my own. So I think I was... And before that point, did you ever feel dissatisfied in corporate? You're just going through the motions yourself? No, I loved it. Right. I mean, it was, it was, <laughs> it was great. There was like, the work was interesting. The, the, um, the, uh, you know, the training was great. I mean, it was, it was a great time to be in corporate back in the mid eighties to mid nineties. I mean, it was fantastic. I mean, you know, they mobile had overseas conferences and, yeah. uh, you know, they looked after you. You felt you felt valued. The problem was that you were on a, you know, you're also on a fairly defined career path. So if you wanted to, if you picked out a role in the business that you wanted to be in, and you went and spoke to your boss about it, he'd say, "Oh, that's good. Yeah, I can see why you'd want to go there, but you got to spend three years over here and then go there." And I'm thinking that, geez, I could probably do that job now, and I didn't want to waste three years. Yep. So I was in more of a hurry than that. Um, and I, I kind of could see that it wasn't, oh, me and corporate in the end wasn't a good fit if I wanted to get on with life. I mean, it was comfortable, but it wasn't, yeah. but it wasn't great. Yeah. And what about um, going back in before corporate in your childhood? Was there anything in your makeup back then that made you think you had a feel for, for business? Where, like you were entrepreneurial, did a paper run or something like that as a kid? Um, well, the first probably, well, I probably say that I was massively competitive and particularly in sports. So I, uh, I remember I was, I was a pretty good runner. I used to run 400 and I, uh, but I wasn't, I wasn't naturally as talented as most of the other guys that I would run against. But my thing was, I always worked harder than everyone else, especially in athletics. So when the guys would go home, at the end of the training session, I'd run another, you know, five three hundreds, and uh, and so when you know when 
when it came to the point that you had to dig deep in races, I you know I had built that kind of extra reservoir of kick, uh, you can uh, kick again. Yeah, so and I, I realised yeah. early on, and it's same with rugby. Um, you know, I would train excessively hard in, in rugby uh, for the same reason. So I realised I was competitive at school. I was kind of a bit of a bit of a clown and mucked around a bit. Um, but I remember in year eleven, a teacher just basically gave up on me. Made me modern history. Made me go to the library. Had to work from the library. Distractive clown. Yeah, pretty much. And it was a bit of a wake up call. So I couldn't couldn't even come to class. So and it was and for me it was like that guy giving up on me. So that's not acceptable for me. So I'm going to actually go out and prove him wrong. So that actually probably set you up quite well for university study then, like inadvertently, sort of self self starting. It was funny. I, I realised that university was. At the start, I was going okay, and at the end, I kind of realised that you could actually game the universities to get good scores. So I was going from kind of, you know, past credits to high distinctions because by adding in a bunch of ex- bit of extra research here and there, it looked like you'd kind of researched a lot, but I'd done not much more. Yeah, minimal. Yeah, but but it was the and it was understanding for me it was understanding the systems and the patterns about how things work that kind of opened up opportunities for me. Now, I wasn't, I wasn't rorting university, but I was, I was playing the game. Well, you're not the first person I've spoken to who worked out at university that you could get good marks by doing that or going back to old exam papers and, and working out the patterns. Mm. And maybe that is a good marker for entrepreneurship yeah. that you can actually achieve a good result by using the bare minimum resources available. That's yeah. almost fundamentally what being a good entrepreneur is. So. Yeah, well, I think, um, I mean, you know, in my experience in the entrepreneur world, um, I wouldn't—I was not an inventor of anything. I was—I just didn't have that brain, so I'm not going to be the guy that's going to come up with the next big thing. But, um, and I, you know, I take my hat off to people that can do that. I'm where my skills probably lie is I'm—I'm I'm a pretty good copier of stuff, and I'll see something that sort of looks interesting but not particularly done well. And I, you know, will execute the hell out of it. I hear echoes of something someone once said to me who was actually a very good entrepreneur in, in pharmaceuticals and med tech. And he said, you don't have to invent something new. Mm. You can actually find something that's already got a great market. Just compete and do it better. Mm. And you can make sometimes a lot more money that way than starting something completely new, which has inherent risks. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, and I think money's one part of it. I, I, I was I was never particularly motivated by that. Even now, I'm not particularly motivated. I think you'll know, Tony. I kind of live a, a Spartan lifestyle. Um, I'm not, you know. I still I drive an old car, and I'm just it's not a, not a motivator for me. So yep. the motivator for me is um, is there something that I can do out there that perhaps hasn't been done or done well that a whole group of people or customers would actually appreciate and be prepared to pay for. And, and I think going back then 24, 25 years ago when you started Calendar Club, I mean, that's what, you, what you've done. You've, you've started something new that people can appreciate. Tell us about how you came into that idea and that business. Well, there's two stories and it's, it depends on, you know, how arrogant I want to be when I tell both sides of it. But I could tell the story that I was some great visionary around, saw this pop-up retail opportunity, saw the malls weren't using the space and corridors well, that it was underpriced, that, um, you know, that, uh, you know, if we could unlock that. And then calendars, on the other hand, weren't 
sold particularly well, um, you know, limited range. And I somehow came up with this great vision to put that together and then scale it, but that really wasn't the case, you know, at all. So Sounded good, though. Sounded great. It's a great thing, you know, like you, like you go into universities and tell that story and sound like a hero, but I think, and I probably tell a similar story to most entrepreneurs, and including yourself, you know, when you get into something, you don't know whether it's going to work. Yeah. So you go in, I remember the first, my true story was I was still working at mobile. I was moonlighting. Um, I had... Um, I decided that I was going to start this calendar thing. I thought that it was something that could could be a, a, you know an interesting space that wasn't catered for. And and definitely what the thing that probably drove me into it was I I bought a calendar one time you know and and I just remember thinking Gee, this is pretty pretty good pretty good content. This back in the nineties uh, and but like not a lot of range around, not a lot of selection anywhere even the bigger ranges at some news agencies and gift shops, there wasn't much. So if a news agency could sell for 50 calendar titles, but if I could go out with 500 or more, and how would I do that? Where would it go? Like, um, So for me, it was like, just start, put one or two on the ground, let's have a look. So I was doing that while I was at mobile. Um, you really were moonlighting. Yeah, I was. So I remember um, I... I took a month off in December of 1995 when I started to run the stores, but the stores had already been open for five weeks. So I was taking calls on my on my work phone, um, you know, while I was, you know, I was having dramas all over the place because the business was brand new and I had three kiosks open in Melbourne with staff and, 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 and quasi-licensees or franchisees. Um, and I kind of held that together until I took leave. And I remember... Remember, I was doing deliveries of calendars to these stores regularly in my mobile company car, and I could fit 28 cartons into the car, including one on my lap, all right? So, and I, Airport West was one of my shopping centres, and I remember turning up with my delivery, my little trolley, uh, and as I've put the final box, and I'm in my tracksuit and T-shirt, and as I've put the final box down and headed out of the mall with my trolley, my boss has come in the entranceway. Oh. <laughs> Remember, I was on holiday, so it wasn't, and, and he said, hey, Brandy, what are you doing? I said, oh, i got a mate running a store in there. I'm just helping him out a bit. <laughs> so I think um, for me, it was like, I thankfully, despite all the issues in the first year, we actually, I actually proved that there was demand that, and that was the only thing that I really wanted to prove was that there was people that would buy calendars if presented with a good opportunity. Um, back then, we, there was only about 250 decent calendars available, and I kept thinking that how do I build a supply chain of a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, and you know we got to a peak of four thousand calendars that we sell through our either through our stores or through our online stores. But that took a long time to build, to encourage publishers into the market, to do some of our own content. Um, from 95 to 2002. And how big was it? In t- how many stores or locations did you have? We there? had, so we went from three to 140 when I sold it. And um, it was, I mean, sometimes sometimes with circumstances, the things around you help you. And I think looking back, some things helped back then that if I started this, the business now might've been more difficult. So a couple of those things were that the rent on mall space was, was a lot lower back then. So that meant that I could probably make more mistakes and not be kind of, you know, out of business in a year. And margin pressure immediately. Yeah. Um, because I had no money. That yeah. was the other thing. I started this business with $30,000, you know, that's all I had. 
So, um, and then the second one was that from about 98 to 2004 or five, the, it was the biggest building phase of new shopping centres or redeveloped shopping centres uh, ever. So this was pre kind of online e-commerce. Um, so the malls are out or the landlords are out there and the developers are out there building more and more shopping centres or increasing the size of existing ones. So a lot of the Australian retailers that, bec- that went from regional retailers back then into national retailers did it off the back of those relationship deals they did with the likes of Westfield. Thank and, you, Frank you know, Lowy. Yeah, yeah. And, other, and other developers. And so did we. So um, great thing was calendars were a very hot item for the first eight years of the business. Yeah. Like incredibly so. so. I mean, it was really one of those first competitive spaces for content calendars. There was, you know... Mm all the latest content would come through in a calendar, whether it be automotive or celebrity. There was, mm. I remember, a huge range and in interest of yeah. finding that content. And it was gonna, it's a big decision to sit on yeah. your wall for 12 months. Yeah. So people were invested in the process. Yeah. The, the big challenge is how do, you, how do you logistically get open in a very short period of time, 150 pop-up stores, which each take at the time that that arrives at the shopping centre, the kit that arrives, it takes about 30 man hours to set up. You need to do that between five o'clock on a Sunday night and 9am on a Monday morning. And you have to do that 150 times in disparate locations across two countries. And it has to go well because if the, if the, the bump in and the build of the store doesn't go well, you're in a major traffic zone of a major shopping centre and if there's stuff lying around or it's not right on the first Man, day. it's not happy. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> so the, the, the skill is to be able to do that and coordinate that. And a lot of times coordinate that with people that are new to our business running our stores for us. Yep. So, um, you know, and coordinating those, those, that team that's that's ultimate. We sure we're great at calendars. We understand that, but the logistics part of the business is the real engine for us. You know, you've also with this with this business calendar club, you've got a bit of a, a, a Kerry Packer story here because you sold the business and then you bought it back again. What was that like? So, but yeah, so I built it up and um, and like anything, I I kind of. I, you know, I sacrificed everything at the start and was, you know, my lifestyle for the first four years was, was pretty poor, you know. So after about four years, the business started to actually really, really get traction. And then we went through this golden era of just growth, you know, 30% growth year on year with really no increase in costs. So it was, it was, it was a pretty amazing period. And as the curve went up, um, I got, you know, I got an opportunity to sell the business to um, an overseas book chain um, who um, were then sold pretty much soon after to um, um, private equity equity firm in Sydney, large one, who then rolled up Borders. uh, So they had Borders, Angus and Robertson, um, Calendar Club and Whitcalls in New Zealand. And they ran that business through from 2003 when I exited through to 2011. Um, and then that whole group, the red group, went broke or, and into voluntary administration in 2011. And uh, I sat back and I looked at it and I thought, you know, is somebody going to buy the group? Didn't happen. Borders, borders basically got liquidated. Angus and Robertson, a few stores got sold off, but ultimately liquidated. Um, Whitcoz in New Zealand got sold to um, 
Pasco Group, who owned farmers over there. And then Calendar Club was left there as the only profitable business in the whole group. So, um, so I was fortunate enough to buy that business back, just the Calendar Club business, out of that group in 2011. I've had it ever since. Yeah, it's been interesting getting back. And, you know, being eight years out, it, it had changed a lot. Yeah. It had eight years of kind of more corporate ownership rather than that real startup kind of like entrepreneurial style of and you know over it over that recent times we've really put that back in and um you know into the business and hence now 25 years that 25 year anniversary this year congratulations thank you um you know we're, we're still going to open another 150 stores you know around the place um and we're still going to sell in excess of you know 1.2 million calendars so, I mean, you talk about the transformation in the business going from startup to corporate and back. What about challenges in this online retailing space? I mean, that's a, a huge change in the nature of business. You talk about a golden era of, era of foot traffic through shopping malls, and now you've got a, a golden era of people clicking and buying. How has that been a challenge or a change for the business? Well, I think we're kind of fortunate with calendars anyway in that we open up, we're, in a, we're basically an event that occurs once a year. Um, so to, to build uh, e-commerce um, customers and traffic, you've got, to, you've got to treat those guys like they're, they're participants in an event rather than an ongoing kind of relationship like most retailers, online retailers would have where you're continually kind of interacting with them. So we treat them like that. We treat them as if they're visiting a, a retail store um, our e-commerce site models exactly the layout of our stores, so it's easy to go online or offline. Um, and um, you know, we we use the we use the e-commerce channel really to supplement our stores. So in that, if people are unable to visit a store, they come to us. If we don't have a store in their location, we point them to the e-commerce store. We have our store people incentivized to sell e-commerce titles that they don't have in the store. So the extra thousand titles we might have in our e-commerce store that aren't in the stores, our people in the stores will get an incentive to sell that, okay? So, but from our point of view, there's a channel, I probably got a different view, a little bit of of e-commerce, and I think, um, but I think over time, it's become a stronger and stronger view. When e-commerce first started, I had, I was a bit of a spectator in it. Um, I kind of came to the conclusion after a couple of years that way e-commerce would uh, achieve any traction was only by two ways, by offering stuff cheap or by offering stuff that was rare and hard to find. And that was it. Selling mainstream stuff at, at, at normal prices, there would be no, very little benefit for people going there. Right? So, which, which proved to be true in our case, when we run a promotion through our e-commerce site, traffic comes in. When we don't run a promotion, no traffic comes in. So you have to be prepared to sell cheap or cheaper, all right, because you have no interaction or, or true interaction with that customer. Um, and on the other side, if you've got something rare, that's that's kind of good too, you know what I mean? Yeah. But um, from our point of view, we sell a $20 item, so even if you discount it and then you add shipping to it, you know, as a competitor against us, you, it's you know, you, your offer's not actually that very compelling. The other thing that's protected us too is we we own so much good content yeah. and that no one else has got. So content's still mm. king, but what about yeah. other challenges then, like increasing rents and decreasing foot traffic? Um, well, actually, it's um, 
Well, a couple of things. I will say that our biggest challenge, our biggest challenge is not so much rents and um, foot traffic because the malls are very good at attracting people in. Okay, so in the Australian retail environment, it's you, the level of shop vacancies is still really low. So the malls are good at filling them up, right? And they're good at making them an attraction and they're good at evolving from, you know, women's fashion used to be a mainstay of, of, of you know, a, a large mall in Australia. That now it's not so much, but they've transitioned that space into other things. There's more entertainment, movies, restaurants. Yeah. It's a services, you know, it's there's a there's a reason to go to it's the a mall. Destination rather than just a place to shop. Top. Exactly right. And they've been very clever at it and probably led the world in that. Yeah. The Australian developers. So um, so foot traffic of anything is actually still good. Right, okay. You know, I mean arguably it might be down over five years, five to ten percent. Okay. But, but um, so for us, it's for us. It's always about, um, and it's probably true for most retailers. You have to select the very best location that suits your business. So for us, we're we're an impulse buy. We need to be in a high traffic impulse location. Yeah. And us moving fifty meters down the corridor can make a material difference to our business. Yeah. They used to right. talk about the the three P's of marketing, but it was always position, 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 wasn't mm. it? Yeah. And yeah. Well, that's that's definitely real estate. I mean. But the biggest challenge for us, so and we have great relationships, or, or we, you know, mostly great relationships with the landlords. Um, they need us; we need them. That's that's it. So it's a good relationship, and in most cases, the conversations are practical and commercial. Uh, it wasn't always that way, um, but you know, they're, they're you know they have their own challenges. So us good rent payers like us at scale are valuable customers. Um, but the big challenge for us is one of relevance. So if I was asked. 10 years ago, whether I would still have thought that calendars would be a business, a viable business in the digital age, I probably would have said no, okay? And I mean, our growth is, you know, we're not, we're not shooting the lights out on growth, but we're, but we're growing, you know, steadily, you know what I mean? Which in a 25-year business is actually quite an achievement, That's you know what I mean? Amazing. So in a, in a, in a, in a thing that should have died, and I don't even believe it's a sunset business. I actually think that it's it's attracting a new audience. Yeah, that's you know, fascinating. It's, it is. I and I you know like, and a lot of it's sort of um, you know because our customer base you would think is, is older, and and there is an element to that. But there's also the younger people that come in that are driven to come in and buy the content that suits them. They love a celebrity. They love a sporting team. Yeah. You know um, and. You know, so there's, there's certain titles that we will sell, you know, thousands and thousands of, you know, that of the single title um, because it's a hot new movie or it's a, you know, or it's a celebrity that's done something remarkable or it's a sporting team or, yeah. you know, we'll sell, um, you know, dog breed calendars because yeah. somebody wants their, their dog on the wall. So <laughs> it's those things that an impulse driven by the, you know, I won't say this, and I say this totally tongue-in-cheek, is, you know, uh, it's the modern art gallery in a way. You know, it's the one cheap piece of art that everyone can afford. Yeah, I wonder, I mean, just dwell on it for a second, Mm. I wonder how much things like Instagram have actually positively impacted your business because looking at an Instagram, you're looking at content constantly and it's become people's mindset and they're driven by content. Mm. So, um, Well, the the actual, like, the social media and, and sites like... YouTube and people that have created their own personas online have actually helped us create new content. 
Yeah, right. So something that's popular on Instagram might might have applicability in a calendar format. Yeah. Right. So there's there's stuff out there that you know if you if you visit our stores or look at our online stores, you'll see content on there that you know you've seen somewhere else. You know, and so those licenses get created to to you know give that the license owner another another product to sell you know their content through. Um, and because more traditional format, yeah, I mean, and, and it works works hand in hand for us. It, yes, retail, you know, rents are there is no there's virtually no increase in rents. In fact, rents have probably gone down in recent times. Um, but you're just resetting your business and your cost base all the time to you know to give yourself more life, right? So you know, anything that doesn't make us money, we jettison. You know, whether that's product. You know, process even people. Yeah. You know, like it has to be done. Has to be done these days. You know. Um, I, I want to change tack a little bit. Mm. So I want to talk about you personally. Then um, motivation. I mean, you, for example, Calendar Club. You've seen that over almost twenty-five years. Um, how do you keep motivated in business and something like that? Um, curiosity. Like, um, I think. Um, so my, my typical my typical week is I'll spend a couple of days or so working on calendar club stuff. Um, I've got a, I co-founded a training and education business with an education entrepreneur, Ross Robinson. And so we do, you know, a bunch of different corporate training courses with good trainers um, and some kind of, some advisory work, which is focused on helping people kind of do the things that we did. That I find really motivating and really interesting. And there's three distinct things that we do, and I, and I love doing this stuff, right? Because it's, it's, I love seeing people achieve and be successful. So it'll be, you're either kind of at early stage or going into fast growth. So that period of your life as a business owner, where you kind of got all these things coming at you and you really don't want to make the wrong calls. And you can sort of benefit from someone who maybe has been there before. Mentorship? Sounding board, advisory yeah. board. That type of thing. So um, that's I, I love doing that. Um, it's it's you know it's a business, but it's also it's also kind of satisfying. So there's those stages. There's the fix-ups. So you know Ross and I have been involved with businesses that are basically on the, their last legs that we've turned around. And then, and the other one is you know we help actually businesses. Uh, we don't we don't do the sale process or anything, but we help businesses get ready to sell. And that's really knocking them into shape and saying, hey, if you want to get the most for your business. These are things you really need to look at to to generate, um, you know, a higher, high, more interest from buyers and then a higher potential valuation. So there's, there's a lot of, and then because our view is you can't turn up one morning and go, I want to sell my business. You, it's a process to go through to understand what what you need to do and understand it from a potential buyer's point of view. I think um, it sounds to me like a lot of things you do and have done, you're putting yourself under um, pressure and, you know, facing yourself immediately with challenges. You talk about, you only had $30,000 mm. when you started Calendar Club, which, mm. you know, capital intensive mm. kind of business. You're taking distressed businesses and turning mm. them around. I mean, you know, you've got, you're facing a lot of challenges and roadblocks. What stops you from failing in these? What, what keeps you driving forward? Well, I mean, it's a good point because I, I like those special circumstances. If, if, if I was in a business where it was steady state and I was just managing it day to day and there wasn't there wasn't a lot of change going, I would just I would 
be bored. Or be totally bored. Like, yeah. just, I, you know, I don't know. I don't even know what I'd do. I mean, it would not be enough. I would certainly go out and do other things, all right? So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not best used in one business. It's not, not the way that I'm built. You know, I need to be across... Because the, the cross-pollination of ideas helps the other businesses that I'm involved with rather than be focused on purely one. Because I've done that. I built Calendar Club for eight years from scratch. Um, I don't want to do that anymore. So so what keeps me motivated is... Um, and, and why don't you give up when you go into these businesses? I mean, what's what keeps you driving it forward? There's very few businesses that, that have, if they've been going for a while and the people have got good intentions and the team's all right, that shouldn't have at least some form of a prosperous future, right? So, um, but sometimes it's about cracking the code, what's missing. I really enjoy trying to crack the code, you know what I mean? That motivates me. It's trying to find smart solutions for stuff, you know what I mean? That's ultimately whatever it is, whether it's a small matter or something big and strategic, it's, it's you know, that's kind of what I, what I try to do, you know, and um, I... My mind runs a million miles an hour. You know, I, I probably take about three hours to get to sleep every night because the brain's been going full full steam for you know. So I probably don't get enough sleep. But um, but that's kind of who you are. That's who I am. Yeah. Why do you think some people then, on the converse, why do you think some people do give up and fail at business at times when they do have a prosperous future in front of them? What 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 do you see that's a common trait? Uh, well, as a business. I'm involved with the moment, and, it's, and part of it's fatigue. People get fatigued by it. It's a dry, It's a it's a grind, and you do have to accept the grind. Um, I remember when I was playing sport. You know, the glory of being out on a on a football field or an athletics track. That's that's the result of all the grind that went before. You know, entrepreneurs that that end up being successful have gone through hell, grind. Shit, oh boy. and everything else yeah, to get to the end, and then what? And they're held up on a pedestal about how well they've done. Now you sit down and have the real conversation with them, and they'll share similar kind of stories around, you know, the difficulties of getting there, and and like the people that that I particularly resonate with out there, they never talk about money. They don't talk about themselves. They talk about the, They talk about what they're trying to achieve. You know, and if you have that mindset of, of trying to achieve something and it's not tied to some financial goal, but you're trying to chase something down, you're trying to create a change in a marketplace, you're trying to create some new value that doesn't exist, that is much more motivating. And, and the reality with it is the money will follow you if you do the right things. Show value. Yeah. I think that I think that problems. I think where people can give up. I mean, because it's hard and it's not suited for everyone. So don't beat yourself up if it's not for you. You know, um, but you know, I think um, for me it was. I just feel at times I'll go further and harder than most people. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'll just last longer. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, you know, and I don't know why that is. Some, I mean, there are some difficult periods in any business's journey. And I uh, think it is. It's a grind, and it's mm. it's it's a challenge to push through. It ain't so. glamorous being an entrepreneur, mate. Like it ain't glamorous at all. It's like, you know, if it's just not what people think. I always used to tell people that you know would come in and pitch something, and they had in their mind's eye it was build something. Then I'm Mark Zuckerberg. There was a, a book I always used to look at called 
a hundred great businesses and the stories behind them. Mm. And every single one of those businesses were a decade or two in the making before they become great brands. And so what's missing in a lot of today's stories, you see the Facebook and Instagram Mm. people Mm. sharing the glamour Mm. and what's missing is the grind. And same with guys like David Beckham, you know, Mm. this guy, when everyone else was having a party, Mm. He was out the back of his council estate kicking the ball yep. in the rain, in the cold, mm. um, and no one saw that. People yep. miss that yep. part of the yep. journey. Yep. I, I, that's exactly right. I, it's, um, if you don't... It, I mean, the hard work's just... It's, the hard work's just the entry price, you know, and then it's about learning about yourself on the way through and, and educating yourself um, about how to make better decisions, how to make them more timely, how to best use resources. And, you know, in business, whether you're in, a, in an early stage business or a mature business, you've got limited resources, you know, people, time, money. And the, the, the skill is not to waste any of that, you know, and to make everything pay for itself um, and to create a value that continues to bring people to your door. It actually leads that concept leads me to a really interesting another discussion but why sometimes seed funding for businesses is not a good idea because it doesn't teach the discipline around um, money and energy and Mm. time because you've got this bank account that's already full yeah but that's for a whole nother discussion Um, so you're busy you're getting limited amount of sleep got a busy life You've got family, friends. How, how do you balance it all? How do you make sure one aspect of your life doesn't lose all your attention? I, um, it's funny because on, on a weekly basis, I'm probably, I don't know, I reckon I'm across six to eight businesses that I've either, I'm involved in in some way and in, in some, I guess, in some financial way, all right? So I'm involved either, either I own part of it or I get paid to do something for them or whatever. So I'm six to eight of those. Um, now, what I'm, what I'm, and if you want to kind of do things the way that I do them, is you have to be at the start. You have to set very clear expectations with all of those parties and say that this is what I can do for you, and this is what I can't do for you. Okay, so I'm very the one skill I've, that I've developed that I think's been effective to allow me to operate this way is I never overpromise. Okay, and but I don't underdeliver either. So it's all within a quarantine scope of activity all right so you can't if we agree to do something it's it's in the context of everything else that i do so if i'm sort of say I'm, you know, on a small front if i'm advising a business i will say to them and there's something that i need to do for them i'll say yep it's thursday today i'll have that i'll have that back to you or we'll have another conversation next thursday i'm not available that night or i'm not available the next day or i'm not available on the weekend this is what you get in, in this type of relationship. But when I'm with you, I'm 100% on you. Phone's turned off, I'm focused, you get me for that period of time. Yeah. All right, the same when I'm working my own businesses. I don't have the phone going for other businesses, that is off. So you're physically and mentally compartmentalising compartmentalizing your yeah. time. The only, pe- the, only, the only people that I will take, you know, a call from or is, um, is my family in yeah. those situations. And, and <laughs> they've been trained about discipline as well in terms of, you know, you can't ring me unless it's an emergency. You yeah. know, I'll see you tonight. Don't bring, don't. Yeah. Don't, and don't, Paul, I need some milk tonight. Don't do that. You know, so <laughs> get it, you know, get it down, get it in the shop. 
So, um, but but seriously, that's how I, I compartmentalise, and then I'm 100% focused on that task. One of the one of the great skills I learned um, was if you want to get stuff done, get up at six o'clock in the morning. Yep. By you know whether you want to get out of your jammers or not, that's up to you. But by eight o'clock, have done something meaningful in a work environment. Finish something by eight o'clock. Then the rest of the day, because probably if you don't do that. You, you know, you haven't finished that one thing you would have done by eight o'clock by the end of the day. Because you drift in, how many people drift into work and grab their coffee at nine and yeah. have, the, have, the, have the chat around the coffee machine? Not underway till 10. Yeah. Then they, you know, time. Yeah, you know, it's just, you don't get anything done. So do one big meaningful thing every day, first thing. And also sounds like reducing distractions are pretty crucial. Yeah. Maximising the most important resource of an entrepreneur, yeah. your time. Yeah, yeah. well, that's why this idea for me of, of a, you know, you know, a semi-Spartan life and, you know, not, not having, not being worried about stuff that actually doesn't increase the quality of my life. Um, I'm going to take another different tack again. You're involved in PowerShop. Yes. Um, and you're the entrepreneur in residence or intrapreneur Um a power shop, which at the time was a very disruptive electricity retailer, which is owned by a listed New Zealand entity, Meridian Energy, which was a government-controlled mm. or is a government-controlled organisation. How do you work entrepreneurially in a government organisation? Well, I have to take my hat off to one of my great friends, Ben Burge. So Ben was the Australian CEO of Meridian Energy, and Ben... PowerShop was a New Zealand electricity retail brand that operating over there, and Ben wanted to bring PowerShop to Australia, okay? And Meridian in Australia was basically a wind generator, or, you know, an electricity generator via wind farms. So they had some big assets here, but they wanted to go down the path of the retailing of electricity from a, you know, there was a, there was a market opportunity, plus it was good for to be able to balance their load out of their wind farms. So... MacArthur, one of their wind farms? Yeah. 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 Um, the big wind farms. Yeah, they're big, you know. So um, Ben was looking around to understand how he would get, how he would launch this business. And um, I was kind of doing other things at the time. This is back in 2012. We just reacquired Calendar Club, so that was in a bit of a mess for the first year. So I was pretty much head down and I had some other things I was doing as well. So when Ben approached me, I just, I, um, and I hadn't, I hadn't worked for anyone else for a long time, you know, so it was also new to me, you know, going back and getting a job. So I actually was really honest with Ben and, and I said, Ben, you know, are you sure that it's something like, you need somebody like me? Because it's, you know, this is, you know what I do, right? And, he's, and he was, you know, he's, he's an amazing bloke and he was very convincing and I said, yeah, okay, well, I'll think about it. And then when I went away, I thought, I can actually only do about 50% of my time. So Ben said, I said to Ben, hey, I could do half roll. And, and he said, okay, yeah, all right, well, I think we can work with that. So I was actually appointed as the CEO of PowerShop in their startup phase. And um, it was, and I remember at the time, and this is probably a, was, a, was an interesting time for me in that for me to get into electricity retail, which I knew nothing about, and was like, you know, it's, it's highly complex and the way that electricity generation works and the maths behind it and the science behind it, which I had no idea about because that is not a skill set of mine. Um, but Ben brought me in to get customers, basically. Yep. And to help build out the tech and, and, and help manage all the relationships and build the team out. Okay, so 
at the time that I joined, we had 38 customers and most of them were sitting in the room with us. So, you know, the tech wasn't built. Um, there was no brand or brand recognition. Um, it just didn't exist. So it was a true startup, but albeit with, you know, arguably access to more money than a startup would have access to because of its ownership. Um, so I kind of just came in and I remember saying to the team on the first day, hey, guys, I don't know anything about electricity retail. I really don't, but you guys do. And um, I'm going to learn a lot from you. Um, hopefully I can teach you some stuff too about operating in a startup environment um, and moving fast and getting through things and making sure that we're prioritising the actions that we need to take in the right order. That's what I can do, all right? So, and it was, and and they still talk, like the, the team still talk about that because they didn't know what to expect this guy. They're all, they're all you know, you know, they admitted underestimating me, right, coming in. And I was under, you know, I was I was a bit intimidated going into that environment because there's some massively intelligent people in the room. And, and I was the guy that knew nothing about the industry. So, um, but, you know, in the end, it was an amazing trip on the way through. Um, we, the, the, the sector was controlled in Victoria where we launched by three electricity retailers. The three big guys had 75% of the, of the, of the market. But it was the most competitive electricity retail, you know, sector or um, geography in the world, with 18 retailers competing in it. So there was a lot of small guys. So we came into this, and the thing about electricity retail is, you, there's no blue ocean. You got to go and get somebody to switch from their supplier to you, all right? And everybody at the time, and the research that I did before I took the gig was that everybody hated the electricity company. And everybody was being overpriced. Basically, the top three were gouging by 20%. Um, and, you know, the dissatisfaction around bill shock and not connecting on time and all these issues. So I remember I remember sitting there with a the team and, and going, well, these are all the issues in the industry, you know, quarterly billing, you know, getting paid, getting an electricity bill every quarter. Who the hell gets paid every quarter? And you get this lumpy bill. It was like stupid stuff. And this has been, this has been grandfathered in for like, Decades. Decades. So we just sat there and then there was no visibility around, um, you know, usage or anything else. So you had no way to influence your usage pattern other than, hey, mum, turn the light off, will you? All right. So there was nothing else, right? So we just went through this list. And this is a, and it's a great lesson for entrepreneurs out there. Like find a sector that's kind of got all these things that are wrong and fix it. So we went through and said, okay, no more quarterly billing. Um, all right, so what's what's the biggest churn event for customers in, in electricity retail at the really? time? Door knocking. Yeah, right. So Johnny the backpacker turning up at your door with his iPad trying to switch your power from, you know, X to Y retailer, that was a 50% churn rate. Well, it's 50% of churn in electricity retail came from that event. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And it was, it was for us, it was a poor way to do business. So what, what, when we went through all these things that were wrong, what, the, the, one of the things that we did particularly well, I think, was we came up with some values that we were going to live up to. And, you know, and the team was instrumental in just putting these together and living and breathing them. And that's why we succeeded and why the business has gone on. And I, those four values were really great for us. We weren't, no wins with shame. So we were not going to win a customer by doing anything other than telling them the truth, all right? And that was not the case in electricity no. at the time. 
no losses with regret. Yep. So we weren't get, people weren't going to move on because we disappointed them. They might move on because, you know, some electricity retailers put up a great deal, but they weren't going to leave because we've disappointed them. We were only going to work with warm leads, which meant that we couldn't door knock and ring you at home. You know what I mean? So Referral. Referral. We had to open up channels that didn't currently exist for us. And we needed to do that anyway because we were a brand that was unknown. Okay, so... Um, and the last one was that everyone in the business either had to serve the customer or serve someone who does. Read that before. Yeah, there you go. So, and those four things we actually embraced as an organisation, as a team. And it meant, what it did was it meant that the clutter around how we operated and how we did business suddenly became clearer. So, in fact, the entrepreneur in residence here um, built the culture, built a culture which drove sales and the, the way people looked at the whole industry and this particular business. Well, it was a team thing. I wouldn't don't put it back onto me. It was a, it was a team situation. But I will say this, it was interesting when we were going to sell mode and I turned up early on and they were trying to, they were trying to get new customers, but because the PowerShop offer wasn't public at that point, because the tech wasn't finished. We were just doing it with family and friends and bringing them into our system and ecosystem and then and using them as our trial customers. And I remember, and even that was difficult, right? So we had this little ongoing promotion about how many people you'd switch over that you knew, all right? And there was a, there was a, there was a leaderboard. And I remember one of the first days I worked in, this, this was going before I got there. And I, and I, and I remember as I walked in, one of the guys in there is on the phone to somebody that he knows and he's almost shaming him into, you know, switch over. Come on, mate, you've got to switch over. And the guy's got no interest, right? <laughs> and he's shaming him and abusing him. And, and, I've, and I've, just, I've just blocked that away. And, I, and we had a team meeting the next day and I said, okay, one of the things we need to do, guys, is we need to learn how to sell. <laughs> Selling is not about shaming your mates into switching over, all right? So we came out, one of the first things we did was that. And one of the other things we did was you looked at where, where all the waste of where customers fall out of the pipe at any point and how do we plug that from a, from a you know, an acquisition, customer acquisition point of view. And those little things actually created business. We did, a, we did a, what we call a friend get friend referral program, which was one of the first around. Um, and that even today generates a load of customers, you know, for that business because it's people and they get incentives to do it. So it's a win-win for everyone. Yeah, I think... Um you know, I've seen uh, PowerShop grow mm. very, very well, um, and it seems to me that culturally that business looks and feels very different to any other electricity mm. business that I've seen before. Yeah. I mean, in being that entrepreneur in residence and, and seeing things um, differently to others, um, do those same traits that you've got help you sniff out perhaps your own investment opportunities? Yeah, look, I think um, I'm not... Yeah, I'm not act, I don't actively go out and look for an investment opportunities, I must say. I mean, I'm more about working with... Distressed businesses? Oh, no, working with organisations and sometimes investment opportunities emerge out of that. So if I, like, I went through a stage in 2005, six where I, I ran a small investment company with, with a, a business partner at the time and I just found that, you know, trying to buy businesses, you know, where, you know, corporate advisors would... would you know, send around their information memorandums was just, it was, it was just not how I wanted to operate. It was, you know, everything was, you know, you, 
you doubt whether you'd, you'd go through a whole big process, which will be expensive, and then you find stuff at the end, and you realise you don't want to invest or buy the business. So I go the other way. I actually, if I if I can't if I can't help and work in the business for a while, and then see it firsthand, I won't be involved. So I've got maybe four investments, you know, outside of my operating businesses um, that have come to me that way. I mean, one of the things you've said about opportunities in business. Um, that the best opportunity is being in the same two places. Um, yeah. Is that as simple as a business must solve a problem? Can you give me a sense of what that actually means? I've always had this view, I can't remember, I, it's, and it's not original, but um, but I saw it one time, and that is that the the best opportunities exist in 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 two places, and that is one is where customers are being overcharged, and the other is where customers are being underserved in some way. And sometimes those overlap and you get a bit of a magnifier effect in the overlap. But when I look back at the things that have been successful for me and then the things that haven't been successful for me, uh, one or both of those have been ticked in every successful case. So, you know, in the Calendar Club case, customers weren't particularly being overcharged, but they were certainly being underserved. So you open up a whole lot of latent demand that exists in the market. In the in the power shop case, you know, um, probably both. Uh, probably customers in the Victorian market in 2012 were being both overcharged and underserved. Yeah. So that created a, that's why that business got such good traction. You know, but every time that I've looked at something, and everyone that every other business that I've been involved that's either failed or or um, or just petered along, you know, and not really done anything, has been because it didn't do one or both of those things. Yeah, and, and you've touched on something there that, you know, in Australia in particular is often glossed over, um, entrepreneur failure. Mm. Um, I mean, do you, do you wear it as a badge of honour? Do you think uh, you look at people who've had a few missteps along the way more favourably or do you think um, those failures could have been avoided? Oh, I think, I, think, um, I think failures can be avoided, but I think having them is not, is not a bad thing. I mean, I mean I've had, I had a... You know, terrible disaster at one point, um, which was you know embarrassing, and um, you know it took a little bit of time for me to mentally get over. But um, but in the end, it's like anything. It's like you know you have an injury; it heals with scar tissue. Now, scar tissue. You know, as I've got older in life, I've realised that some of the greatest value that you can you know attribute comes in the form of scar tissue, and because the scar tissue is about learning, you know. And you're a bit of a mug if you fail and you make the same mistake again, all right? But if you take that, this failure that I was involved in, I, the other stuff that, I, that has gone well, the, the, but the failure one is probably the thing where I've absolutely learnt the most in the shortest period of time. And it was particularly when you're scrambling to save something, you know what I mean? And you, when you're scrambling to save something and you're pulling out all stops, this is like 10 years ago now, um, you you learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about what's required in the people around you, and you learn a lot about speed of action. You know, um, and it it heightens the need to make the best possible decisions, because in a distressed situation, if you make bad calls, the whole thing can unwind. You know, rapidly. Rapidly, right? Yeah. So it's the quality, you know, on the other hand, I've been, now that business failed, but on the other hand, there's been a number of businesses that, you know, I've been, you know, really central to saving because of those lessons that I learned from the failure. 
Yeah. So, um, and, you know, it's one that was basically just gone. You know, it was days away from having administrators called in. It's now, you know, you know, a family company that had been going for 30 years that is now as prosperous as it's ever been. Yeah. You know, because of the quality of decisions that were made and the speed of action. Well, it sounds to me you're actually very well qualified to have written a book that you published called the uh, the Entrepreneurial Way. So, what is the Entrepreneurial Way? Um, well, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Let me just say that the actual <laughs> let's do the actual the subtitle of the book is uh, 92 Success Secrets what? and Shortcuts to Unleash the Entrepreneur in You. So, uh, <laughs> why not? Why not 105 secrets? Why 92? Well, I I just kept writing them. And I got up to maybe 160 that I thought was kind of book-worthy. And I just kept bringing them down and amalgamating them and um, rewriting sections until um, I got... And it, the, the number just ended up at 92, you know, because that was... that was The 92 was the actual content was as much as I was happy with. Yeah. You know... Well, um, you, you were blogging. I remember your, your blogs back in the day, The mm. Bull... Weekly wisdom. Weekly wisdom by the bull. Why the bull? Ah, um, uh, look, it's an it's it's an old nickname. I can't even remember. <laughs> I'm sure there's I'm sure there's a can't story remember. there. It's like goes uh, way back. You, know, sure you have to find some old, have to find some old school friends. I think. But you you obviously again tapped into something early um, that you know people wanted content. You know, regular content, digestible content. You you saw yeah. that early. Um, oh, look, I think you give me too much credit. I think I think. I started. It, it's interesting now that blogging's become such a big thing, and, and it's probably gone over the over the edge into saturation now. But in in two thousand and nine, I just it was after this business failed, and I needed something just that I felt like was. And I thought back in two thousand nine, I'm going to write a book, and I wasn't ready to write the book. So I started to just say, well, I'm just going to share my thoughts. And I had no idea how to do it. Blogs weren't really around in 2009. Um, so I just, I, I remember I, I just started to write this weekly email and it was, you had to be on the email list. So it never really, you know, so I would go to people like you, Simo, and go, hey, Simo, I've, I've, um, I'm writing this, this um, weekly thing. Mind if I put you on the list and see if you like it? If you don't like it, I'll take you off. So I got it up to one by one. I got it up to 1,100 people, yeah. you know, in terms of people on this list. And then people would, and it would perpetuate. Add, add others. Add others yeah. and share and people would find out about me. Um, and I and I used to write it every Sunday afternoon and it would take me a couple of hours and it'd just be observations about stuff that I'd seen or heard or, or um, and it was, it was, um, it was a really big part of my life. And what would happen is I would get numerous kind of, you know, responses from people and and interestingly what I didn't appreciate at the time was um, I didn't know what I was going to do next I had a couple of things going on but I, I didn't really know and um, I what this did was in hindsight was it established with people that I actually the perception whether it's true or not was actually new stuff you know that was valuable to people and which is this whole idea of push pull in terms of your own personal brand and um, so over time and because I kept at it so regularly for five or six years by the end of it it became parts of people's 
like weekly kind of yeah. content digestible. It always it was, arri- yeah. it arrived exactly at, yeah. you know, first thing Monday morning, every single week. It was the regular as clockwork um, and, you know, it became, I used to get people if, I remember a couple of times I missed a week and people would say, where's the, where's the, where's the, where's the wisdom? You know what I mean? So it became such a part of their life. And what it led to was all these other things, a bunch of things where people go, oh, you've got to go and talk to Paul Breen because he kind of knows what he's talking about. So other opportunities and other things because I was prepared to share content and my experience and I did it raw. Yeah. Failure, success, you know, everything. Well, I think that's what people loved about it was, and, and the way you attacked it was you, you gave it warts and all, mm. not the sugar coating, mm. look at me, Tony Robbins kind of stuff. It mm. was the warts and all entrepreneurial way, mm. um, which leads me to a question. Do you think entrepreneurs are born or made? Born or made? I actually don't know. Oh, I think you, I think you can learn entrepreneurial traits. Um, I, am I born or made? I'm talking about myself. I was, look, I was very comfortable in, in corporate life for 10 years and I loved it. Um, I think you get, you can get to a point where that life just doesn't suit you anymore. And I think in the made scenario, what other choice have you got other than to go out and create a different life for yourself? So if corporate had been something that met all my needs, You'd still be there. I'd probably still be there, but it didn't. So I think mine was purely circumstantial. I never went out to create. I was never the guy, you know, um, at university that was in front of people. I was very shy, you know. Like, you know, I, I never pushed myself out there. I just didn't do that. So um, it was only when, only when I kind of, I thought I faced a circumstance which said, you know what, I want to be in control of my own life, and. Um, and then I had to I had to discover within myself what that meant, you know. So I don't think I was born the way I am. I think I kind of made myself and I was influenced by events and circumstances around me. And sometimes I think people get thrown an opportunity and you either go, I'm going to go after that or I'm going to let it slide to the next person. And I think, I think sometimes it's those those um, sliding door moments that, yeah. that put you on the path. I mean, you know, you might be very satisfied in what you're doing, but something comes up and you go, shit, i got to go after that. Yeah. And then suddenly you you are an entrepreneur. You're on a different road. You're on a different way. path, yeah. you know. So I don't think, I think the, I think a lot of people talk about the theory of all of that. I think it's actually, maybe it's a sliding door moment. It certainly was for me. It's interesting. Um, just for anyone who hasn't read the book, it's a must. It's got practicality cultural lessons, a bit of levity, uh, but just good common sense tips, still available at all good book retailers, yes? Online. Online. Good book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might just, just check out Amazon, you can get it on there. Um, what are three business books you've read that you think are essential for uh, people to read? Oh, look, going back, I like I like the Jim Collins stuff. I think that's pretty interesting. And I good, think- Good to great. Oh, look, I like, there's a, there's a book that I think that's really targeted on entrepreneurial type companies and is um, The Rockefeller Habits by Vern Harnish. Yep. And I reckon the other one is one called The Entrepreneurial Way, 92 Success Secrets <laughs> and Shortcuts to Unleash the Entrepreneur in You. That's, I heard that's pretty good. So uh, yes. try it out. I, um, I wrote a lesson, a, a lesson, a LinkedIn post the other day, Yep. Um, five good business books to read, and I had Vern Harnish's Rockefeller Habits in there as well. 
Entrepreneurial Way was number six. Didn't quite, <laughs> didn't quite make the uh, the cut. But it was very close. Very yeah, close. It sure so was. We're going to finish off quick fire. Yeah. Who's your favourite comedian? Um, Richard Pryor. Tennis player. Beyond Borg. Favourite band. Fleetwood Mac. Actor. De Niro. Fondest childhood memory. Oh, I think just I think family holidays. We used to go to the Gold Coast and load up the car and drive up there. It was great in the seventies. It was fantastic. You've got kids. What kind of dad would they say you are? Um, involved, fun, tough. What kind of dad would you say you are? God, that's a hard question. I mean, it's easier to think what they'd say than what I would say. Um, I think. I. Once again, it's probably my innate nature is to say well I just want to be better at being a dad more than anything well that leads me to the next question what skill are you not very good at that you would like to be better at um, well there's probably a few things I'd like to be a better basketball shooter because I coach basketball um, I'd like to be um, I think in the in the scheme of having kids and my kids are in, you know getting older teens now um, well one of them is anyway is to actually go back and, and with all the family stuff going on, being able to kind of um, spend time, more time with your wife in a quality way. Do you play an instrument? No. If you could, what instrument would you play? Oh, it would be saxophone. Really? Mm. Um, who is the person, dead or alive, that you would most like to have lunch with? Muhammad Ali. Um, lastly, anyone listening, thinking of starting a business, what one piece of advice would you give them? Start. Paul Breen, thanks for sharing. Thanks for being on Discipline. Thank you. Thanks, Tony.